All right, well, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in for uh, today. Oh, Father, we thank you for uh, your kindness getting us here, getting us the opportunity to sit under the teaching of your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts such that we would receive it and be instructed by it. Lord, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so hopefully you grabbed a handout on your way in. Um, but today we're going to be concluding our six-week study of the fear of man. So we've thought about the various ways that we tend to um, struggle with the fear of man. And we've also considered how the primary antidote to the fear of man is to fear God. That's the lesson that Sam covered um, back earlier in the class. And again, that audio unfortunately wasn't recorded. But if you'd like to see the, the content, the material from that, just email Sam and he can send you a copy of his manuscript. Um, so fear of man, uh, or fear of God rather. Um, but part of the, the other antidote to the fear of man is, is in addition to fearing God, also to love and to serve one another. And so this morning, that's primarily what we're going to be talking about. So if fear of God is the primary way by which we combat our fear of man, loving and serving one another is another tool that we can add to our tool belt uh, to fight this battle. And so as we press on, I wanted to just give some encouragement up front, some encouragement to persevere. Um, Growing in the fear of the Lord and love of others is not an overnight process. Even as I've been preparing for the content for this class and the previous classes as well, I've just been reminded how often and how frequently the fear of man roots itself deeply in my heart and in my life. And it's amazing to me that every year this continues to come up. You would think like, man, haven't I graduated from the fear of man? Can't I move on to other sins that I can then graduate from? But unfortunately, fear of man is one of those things that continually resurfaces in our life. So even a week from now or six weeks from now or a year from now, if you look up and you think, man, why am I still dealing with fear of man? Just recognize that's normal. (laughs) This is going to be a lifelong battle, and that's the process of what we call sanctification. But there is good news. I love the assurance that Paul gives to the believers in the church of Philippi when he reminds them that he, that is God, who began a good work in them, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so even as we labor on, even as we seek to continue to grow in these areas, we have this assurance from God that if he has begun that work of salvation in you, he will bring it to completion when Christ returns. And so ultimately it's not up to us. God's spirit is the one doing the work in us and we can take courage and confidence to persevere in that. A uh, helpful analogy uh, as well, just by way of encouragement, I always remembered when I was a kid and I would go visit my grandparents. My grandparents lived out of state, so I would only see them, you know, once a year or a couple times a year. And when I was a kid, I would go see them and they would say, oh my gosh, you've grown so much. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And you kind of look around and you're like trying to look at yourself and you're like, I don't, I don't feel like I've grown much. Um, but the reality is, is that because they haven't seen you in time, it looks like you've grown a lot. But when you're just kind of seeing yourself every day, you don't notice that slow progressive growth. Um, so we just encourage you to, to point out evidences of sanctification in the lives of others. Sometimes it's hard to feel like we're growing. Sometimes we just, we're stuck with ourselves each day and day in and day out. It can be wearisome and we don't realize what God is doing in us. So if you see another brother or sister in this church growing, point out that evidence in them. They might not even realize it, but it could be of a lot of encouragement to them.
So today we're going to begin our lesson by spending some time in John's first epistle. So turn with me to the book of 1 John. John is toward the end of the New Testament, just before um, Jude and Revelation. So flip, me, flip with me to John, 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 4. What I hope that we'll see here in 1 John is that love will reorient us toward God and away from the fear of others. That is a reorientation toward God that is from God, which simply means that we are being reoriented toward God and it is God who is doing the reorienting for us. Interestingly, 1 John alone contains more mentions of love than does any book in the Bible besides the book of Psalms. That's crazy. This small little book, the small little letter, 1 John, contains more references to love than any other book in the entire Bible besides the book of Psalms. And up until 1 John 4, John has been writing to convince his readers that there is an intimate relationship between love and the truth. So the truth of the gospel compels love, and the love that we show others is evidence that the gospel has taken root in our hearts. Love toward God and toward others is like a litmus test. We read it and we can see of true faith in the lives of other people. And so now in chapter four, and we're gonna be specifically looking at verses seven through 21, he doubles down. John shows us that Jesus forgives sinners so that they can cease from sin and love one another. So let's pick up in verse seven. Look with me at 1 John chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's stop there. I want to ask a series of questions to guide us through this text. So keep your head down there on the text and feel free to just shout out these answers as I go. So starting in verse 7 and working our way through verse 12. So where is love from? God, that's right. And when someone loves God and others, what does that evidence? Say again. Yeah, that they have been born of God and know God. You can see that there in verse 7. Keep your eyes down on the text. And how is the love of God made manifest among us? Yeah, through the Son. Verse 9, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And what was the purpose for sending the Son according to John in verse 9? Yeah, so that we might live through him. Oftentimes in uh, letters, you can see this, this purpose clause, so that. 
And so anytime if you're ever reading through a letter in the Bible, um, you'll often pick up that there's these purpose clauses. So the author will lay down a truth and then they'll give a purpose clause for this purpose or so that we might live through him, that is, through Christ. And who, li- who loves first? You see this in verse 10. Who loves first? God. And the last one. Taking all of these things into account, what is required of us? To love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There are two major threads from this section that I want to pull on. The first is that God is the source of all love. And then the second is that when God, as the source of all love, pours out his love on us, we must respond by loving one another. So let's start with that first one. God is the source of all love. We could spend the rest of our time reflecting this morning on that attribute of God, that communicable attribute of God's love. But I want us to think about the love of God displayed in the sending of his son. As we saw there in verses 9, 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. One of the things that is uh, particularly fascinating about this love of God that is made manifest to us through the Son is that we get a picture of the eternal love of God. So when Jesus comes to this earth being sent by God, it means that the Son of God takes on flesh in order to love us with the same love with which he has been experiencing love with the Father from eternity. And so Jesus loves us with the same love that he has received from the Father for eternity. Jesus says in John 15 verse 9 that as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And so if you want a picture of this love, this is not just the type of love that we throw around in constant conversation like I love this food or I love this thing or I love this sport. No, this is an eternal love that God has given to us through the Son. If you've ever wondered why Christians confess a Trinitarian God that is one God in three persons, it is because the Trinity is all over the pages of the Bible. And in understanding the nature of the relations between the persons of the Trinity, we get to know something more about God himself. And as we come to know more about God, we grow to love God more. As we grow to love God more, we inevitably will love other people more and to fear them less. So apart from a biblically confessed doctrine of the Trinity, we are robbed of understanding something of God's love for us. Because God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can see that again, this love that God is now manifest among us through his Son is the same love that has existed for eternity in the Godhead. This means that even before creation, God's very nature is love, and this love is now being poured out to us in the Son. In the words of one author, the Father is the lover and the Son is the beloved. In his death for sinners, Christ 
is the lover and his church are the beloved. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It is astounding to consider that God would invite us to share, to experience something of this love through the sending of his son for us. And this love is most evidently demonstrated in the mission for which the son was sent. Look back at verse 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means that Christ Jesus was a sacrifice that bore God's wrath for us, cleansed us from our guilt, and gave us God's favor. So as humans, we know that every single one of us have transgressed God's holy commands. Born into the flesh means to be born into sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is holy, we know that this sin that we all possess is incompatible with God's holiness. And so we're left with that dilemma. If God has made this creation to enjoy fellowship with them as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered the world, how are we going to return back to that spot? How is a holy God going to again dwell with an unholy people? Well, here in verse 10 of 1 John 4, we see a bit of the answer. We have not loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, because if God is going to be just and not just wipe away our sins without any measure of sacrifice, that would mean that he is unjust. But because he sends the son to be that sacrifice that not only takes God's wrath upon himself, but by which he gives us his own righteousness from the life that he lived, then all those who profess faith in him and repentance from their sins can, can, can dwell again with God in holiness because they're dwelling in Christ's righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel, that God not only has sent his son, but that his son is the means by which we can be restored back into relationship with God. In his death, Jesus bore the penalty of God's just wrath against our sin. And then now through the Holy Spirit, God can awaken our hearts to recognize our need for God himself to provide the means for our salvation, to provide the means by which we can enjoy relationship with him again, to be the means by which we can have propitiation for our sins, that God's wrath doesn't have to rest upon us, that God's favor can now be placed upon us through Christ. This is the eternal love of God. And if God has so acted in this way toward us, how can we act with anything less than love toward others? If God has already accepted us in Christ, why do we still allow ourselves to be enslaved by a desire for acceptance from others? This is where we see the hearts of the gospel enter into our fear of man. If you are confident in the salvation that you've been given by God through the Son, then why do you long for the acceptance, the pleasure of others? Why do you consistently give your life over to operating in a way that you're valuing the opinions of man? Why do you respond in conversation to people in certain ways as if you need their acceptance when you've already been accepted by God through the blood of Christ? 
So apart from taking this truth, this gospel truth, that God has saved you through his son, wholly of his own accord, not of anything that we could contribute or do, your attempts to overcome fear of man will always fail. The seed of works-based righteousness runs deep within us. Each one of us want to atone for our own sins because we can actually work, we can show for what we're doing in order to obtain God's favor. I think it can also be true of the fear of man. We could leave this class and say, okay, here's this discipline, this discipline, and this discipline that I'm going to do to overcome fear of man. But then what happens is ultimately you're resting on those disciplines to sanctify you rather than God. If we truly believe what Paul said earlier in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you, that is God who began a good work in you, is the one who will bring it to completion, then our attempts to beat the fear of man begin by reflecting on what God has done for us and pleading with him to continue to sanctify us. Just going before him and saying, God, I can't do this on my own, but I know that you can because you have promised. And so let me wait on you. Let me trust on you. And when God, as the source of all love, pours out his love on us that way, we will naturally respond with love toward others. The more that we reflect on this gospel, the more that we will naturally love others. It's like an oversaturated sponge that when you pour water on it, it just overflows from the sponge. Look back down at 1 John 4 verse 11. This first sentence is like a summary sentence of what has come before, set up as an if-then statement. If God has so loved us in this way, in this way we've just described, and he has, then we ought to also love one another. When we fear others more than we love others, we suppress the truth that the Holy Spirit has imparted to us. Every true Christian knows that they ought to love others more than they fear them, But when we fail to love for the sake of fear, we suppress that gift from God. And because of God's costly love towards us, we can take big risks in our relationships with other peoples. We are so rooted in the love of God in Christ that acceptance and others' approval is not the foundation on which we stand. The foundation on which we stand is the acceptance that we have in God through Christ. Let's finish reading this passage, picking back up in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever fears has not been perfected with the love that's described here in this passage. Again, one day we will stand before God when Christ returns and be presented in this perfected state. That is, we will be glorified in God's presence. But until that day, we are continually being sanctified by his spirit. We are continually growing in these ways. And so we must labor to be dependent upon God's spirit to bring this about in us. Because as long as fear resides in us, we can also be sure that love is being muted, at least in some ways. In Christ, we can have confidence for the day of judgment. So we not only don't have to fear that final condemnation before God, but we also don't have to fear others in this life. So the next time you find yourself operating out of fear of man, which if you remember back to the beginning of the class, we defined as being afraid of someone, holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people or needing people. The next time you find yourself given over to this, remember that perpetually living in this fear will lead to gospel amnesia. You will forget these truths of the gospel that you are accepted in Christ, that God's love has been poured out upon you, that you have no need to fear condemnation. You will forget what you possess in God through Christ. All of the riches that Christ possesses, he has poured out upon us. He has even given us the gift of his spirit, which is working in us even now, the divine power that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 3. So as we think about this love, Let's see how it plays out in the Corinthian church. So flip over to me, uh, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If that's the foundation, how is this played out for this church here in Corinth? It's a great text to understand the shape that our love and our service toward others should take. As you'll probably remember from Brad's preaching in 2 Corinthians, this is one benefit of Uh, Jumping into a passage um, where there's already some context provided for us uh, from Brad's sermon series. So you probably remember the the phrase that Brad has been saying, the problem is not there's too much church in Corinth, but there's too much of Corinth in the church. And that context is helpful for us to know um, leading into chapter 13, because this is a church that has been overly concerned with all that Corinth around it values. They're overly concerned with possessing superior rhetoric of evaluating the persuasive and oratory abilities of its pastors and its missionaries. They're concerned with pragmatic behavior around sexuality. They're concerned with provocative dress to demonstrate their high social class. They're overly concerned with the ranking of spiritual gifts. In other words, they were jockeying for the approval and the praise of men, and they wanted to reflect and to pull punches with the rest of the context around them in Corinth. So when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter that's wedged in between chapters 12 and 14, which are also about spiritual gifts and orderly worship, Paul lays down the hammer on them. So let's begin reading in verse 1. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, you can possess all of the giftedness and knowledge in the world, but if you lack love, you possess nothing. You can even defeat the fear of man by withdrawing from others or by disregarding the concerns of others. But because those responses are not rooted in love, you are still enslaved to that fear of man. Without love, your service to the church is not effective in building others up. According to verse 3, you can even be willing to give up your life for the church. But if it is void of love and for the sake of receiving praise from others or for the purpose of preserving a legacy or your own ego, the text says it's worthless. God cares not just about our actions, but the posture, the motivations of our heart as well. Now listen to these descriptions of love starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How do these descriptions of love run contrary to the fear of man and its symptoms? You can see those there in the text, verses 4 through 7. How do these descriptions of love, starting in verse 4, run contrary to the fear of man and its symptoms? Emily said, fear of man will lead us to envy others, to boast. But love is the opposite of those things. What else? Absolutely. Yeah, Crystal's noting the fact that love comes from God. And so even linking 1 John 4 with this passage here, we see that love is what is produced and finds its origin in God, that eternal love that has existed in the Godhead. But these other characteristics that we see, man, those, those come from sin. And so our fear of man is ultimately the root of this sin in us. But love from God is opposite. What else do you see? Yeah. 
And then, yeah, Sam's hopefully noting that um, fear of man can often cause us to withdraw or to pull away from people that are difficult or people that are hard to bear with. And yet, again, it's helpful to remember, this is not just some letter that's out in the abstract, but this is a letter that Paul writ, wrote to believers in the church and is binding on believers in the church today. And so as those believers who have received God's love, we ought also to bear with one another, even in this church, to believe the best about them, to hope all things, not to assume the worst in anyone else. What else? That's good. Thanks, Claire. Yeah, sometimes one of the things Claire was uh, pointing out, um, sometimes we operate out of fear of man because we want to project a certain image of ourselves or we want to conjure up the favor of others. We can actually end up manipulating the truth because, again, we're projecting an image of ourselves that's maybe better than it ought to be or we're covering up the pieces of us that aren't as favorable. But that's not rejoicing with the truth. That's not investing, our, or rather vesting our lives in all of the shortcomings and discrepancies that we have before others. So again, I would encourage you, just continue to reflect. How does love, even as it's described here in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, serve kind of as that antidote to the, the poison of fear of man in our own lives or in the church? So I hope that what we see from our reading in 1 John and from the church of Corinth is that love is a divine gift from God and evidence of it in the lives of believers will be used for the sake of building up the church. It will also be used to cultivate humility and obedience before God. It is impossible to simultaneously fear others and to love others. So we spent a lot of time on this first point, but I want to pause and just open it up for any questions uh, so far before we move on to the second the second point. Any questions or reflections, observations? Yeah, Dan.
You can't do that? Oh, man, well, you should come to my basement. Yeah. Yeah, excellent question, Dan. Uh, what, what I always appreciate about our brother Dan is that um, he never wants uh, truth to be divorced from practice, which should be true of all of the Christian life and for each of us. We never want to just store up all these things and then to possess them exactly like what we're talking about here in the church of Corinth. These people who have all this knowledge, but if they lack love, it means nothing. And so the, the thing that Dan is pointing to is, okay, what do we do when we don't feel love? How do we cultivate greater love? Do we just act out in love whenever we don't feel it? How do we muster this love up? Those are some of the things we're going to be reflecting on here in this next section and then kind of toward the end as we uh, think about looking to Jesus. Um, but I think just one quick way that um, we can do that is through encouragement to one another. I love what um, the writer of Hebrews uh, says in chapter 10 when he's writing to this church that's facing, these Christians that are facing much discouragement. We've probably heard the passage, uh, particularly as we even think about COVID, um, that we are to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But the verse prior to that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. There's something unique about what God has baked into the local church that is intended to cultivate love within us. And so it's no accident that the writer of Hebrews has wedded meeting with other believers and stirring one another up to love and to good works. By virtue of being here, even by being in this room right now, by going over to the main service at 1030, you are making a choice to love one another. You could have neglected to be here. You could have chosen to sleep in. You could have chosen to just stay at home and to not have to drive here and put on your church clothes. But by virtue of being here, and I hope you, everyone in this room receives this as encouragement, you've made the choice to love one another. And by virtue, you're also receiving that love from one another. So I would encourage you that even as you join us every Sunday, receive the gift of love from one another and give that love to one another by giving encouragement, by simply making eye contact with those to whom you're speaking to, by putting a hand on the shoulder, by giving someone a hug. I think that's a practical way that God by his spirit can cultivate greater love within us. And then we'll consider some more examples here in a minute. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah. Yeah. good man. Ethan Whiteley coming at the idol of feelings. We love to see it. Come on, man. Yeah, in a culture that over idolizes how we feel and um, kind of allows that to be the objective measure by which we engage with the world, 
we have to recognize that in God's word, love is often spoken of as an action, even as we saw in 1 John 4. How was the love of God made manifest to us? Through the sending of the Son into the world, through the Son's act of going to the cross to bear the penalty of our sins for us, through the Son's act of being raised from the dead. And so, yeah, that's just a a super helpful reminder for us, Ethan. I think uh, sometimes I'm deceived into thinking that if I'm not feeling love, that I'm not capable of loving, but then I go out of my way to act in love, and then somehow, by God's Spirit, He cultivates a spirit of love within me. You can think, man, ah, shoot, am I really scheduled for the children's ministry this week? I don't know if I'm really feeling it. Okay, help me, Lord. Keep me. Keep me in a positive spirit and let me do this in love. And then you do it. And then what happens? God's Spirit produces greater love within you. Well, let's move on. Let's Let's continue to, to think about some of those practical applications as we reflect on those that we need to love and to serve. So what does the fear of man look like with God? Well, this has really been what the whole class has been about, so I won't rehash everything. But in short, we live to please others because we enjoy their physical and tangible praise over the reward that God gives to those who wait. And so we need to love and to serve God first and foremost as an antidote to our fear of man. Uh, you can see second there, just our enemies. What does fear of man look like with our enemies? It looks like withdrawal. We're afraid of them. It looks like shame. Oftentimes with those that we perceive to be our enemies, they possess some power over us to do us harm. And so we can feel shame that they possess that power to do us harm. It can look like anger. Those who, um, those who are against us, we can, we can be angry with them. So these enemies, these could be characterized as those who want to harm you or who have harmed you in the past. In Luke 6, verses 27 through 33, Christ says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. This is a high standard. It's hard and sometimes it hurts to love our enemies. It isn't always safe to love our enemies. And it's sometimes scary. Yet if we are to obey Jesus and to love him as he has commanded us to love, if we are to love others instead of fearing them, we will extend this love even to those who are against us. In that book that we've referenced and even just given away this morning, Ed Welch has excellent things to say about the context of loving our enemies. He says, when confronted with enemies, we should go directly to the Psalms if we are not sure how to feel or what to say. When we are inclined to take matters into our own hands, the Psalms teach us to trust God. When we would insulate ourselves from pain, they teach us to trust God. Instead of vowing that we will never again move close to another person, we'd learn to trust God. Instead of extinguishing hope, the Psalms teach us to trust God. In the Psalms, it was the glory of God that was David's mission, not his own vindication. You can take even just uh, Psalm 28, for instance. Psalms uh, 26 through 29 are excellent Psalms uh, where David is praying in light of enemies that are surrounding him. It's important to note that David doesn't go to himself, he doesn't go to his friends, he doesn't go to anyone but to God first to express how he's feeling about his enemies. 
And in Psalm 28, we see that David says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. So when you're confronted with those who are against you, those who seek to harm you, those that even just don't like you for whatever reason, rather than to operate out of fear of man, go to God. Ask for his favor. Express your confusion, your frustration, your discouragement that you encounter with them. And then leave it up to God to decide how he will vindicate you. Leave it up to God to decide how he will punish evil. There will be times where vindication and justice do need to happen in this life, though. Ultimately, we put ourselves into God's hands, trusting that he will vindicate. But there will be times where vindication and justice need to happen in this life. Perpetrators of evil, such as those who engage in physical or sexual abuse, should be reported. God has instituted government to carry out justice on his behalf and to punish evildoers. So there's lots of common scenarios we can probably think of where enemies just cause us to operate out of fear of man. But there are times when enemies are true enemies that want to cause us harm and have caused us harm. But God has, again, he's given us the government to punish evil, to enact justice. And so we ought to... uh, to carry out justice on behalf. And so we ought to take advantage of what God has given us. Let's keep moving on. So you see there on your handout, unbelievers. So what does, uh, I want to put this question to you. What does fear of man look like with unbelievers? So we don't share the gospel with them because we're afraid of how they might respond. We don't talk about Christian things in the same way that we would talk with other Christians about it. We kind of temper how we feel about God. We might even kind of adopt certain cultural practices because we want to fit in. Yeah, these are a number of ways that we uh, exude fear of man with unbelievers. Several ways that we can love them better is that we should pray for them. Pray that God would have mercy on them. Pray that we would be equipped for conversations with them. We should be thoughtful towards them and not treat them like gospel projects as well. In a culture that grows increasingly hostile to Christians and to the gospel, our non-Christian friends and neighbors and enemies need our love, not our fear of man, even when they don't perceive that need. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says that we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as you reflect on this this subject, I think each of us has interaction in some ways with unbelievers. 
think specifically just as Emily so helpfully and graciously shared with us from her own experience, how does fear of man in my own life manifest amongst unbelievers? Once you can identify that, then you can identify the lie that you believe about God as a consequence. And then we can start to try to reorient our lives. This is true of our neighbors as well. You can think about the, you know, the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, right? We buy things that we don't need because we want to impress our neighbors or to keep up with them. We don't want to have the perception that, uh, you know, our grass is not going to be as good as the guy's grass across the street, right? In Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, Jesus says that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Our physical families. Fear of man often comes up in our physical families. We can fail to have hard convos for fear of disturbing the peace. I just realized I wrote convos into my manuscript, um, which is not a real word. It's short for conversations, but here we are. That's what happens whenever you outline instead of, anyway. But truly, we can fail to have hard conversations with family members for fear of disturbing the peace. I don't know why, but I find this true uh, even with my own family. Um, I find it much harder to identify and bring uh, like a word of encouragement or conviction about sin in the lives of family members or close friends than I do in maybe people who are a little bit more on the periphery. Um, and that's often because I think that I'm, I'm, one, I'm fearing what their response will be or I'm fearing that they'll think that I'm more righteous than they are. But all of these reasons are just rooted in what they will perceive of me rather than to faithfully and compassionately deliver the truth. And so if we can identify that, then we need to um, respond by remembering that ultimately we're not standing upon our own truth, but we're standing on the truth that's in God's word. And we're intending to love them by graciously bringing the truth to them. Another instance, maybe you're deeply hurt by a family member. And so you just continue to suppress those feelings for fear of confronting them. Uh, with our brothers and sisters in the faith. So fear of man, what does that look like with brothers and sisters in the faith? Well, we can jockey for spiritual insight or knowledge to compare with others. We can perform good works or service in hopes that others will see us. We can fail to be vulnerable because we fear the exposure that can come from sharing our sin struggles and insecurities. But insofar as we're doing these things, we're not loving others well. We're not choosing to allow them into uh, the inside of our lives, to, to love them, to share vulnerably with them, to ultimately love and serve God. Again, the only way that we can break the cycle of fear of man and even to love others as we ought is if we rest in the power of God's love for us and in Christ's demonstration of it. So one of the practical things that we can do is to look to Jesus. So flip over um, to the next page on your handout. Um, and we need to move quickly, but let's take a minute just to reflect on um, this passage from the book of Philippians. I think one, uh, one practical thing that you can do this week, and even related to Dan's question, how do we cultivate more love within us? It would be to read the book of Philippians. I think the book of Philippians takes like 20 minutes to read if you just sit down and read it in one sitting. So I'd encourage you sometime this week, sit down and read the book of Philippians. And as you read it, notice the emphasis that Paul gives toward the shape of love and service toward God and toward one another. 
He even calls out specific people for their love that they've shown towards others. And then sandwiched there in chapter 2, we see the ultimate example of love and service in Jesus Christ. And so take some time, notice this, and then pray that God would cultivate this type of love in you. Better yet, you can ask someone in this room or someone else in the church to read Philippians 2 with you. You can just hop on a call and say, hey, these are some things I noticed about the way in which we are to love one another based on how uh, Christ has loved us. So there we see in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, that we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only way that we are going to be able to faithfully love people as we ought to is if we look to the supreme example of love, which is Jesus Christ. We ought to spend time reflecting on the truth of how Christ has loved us. One of the most significant um, spiritual disciplines that has really helped to grow my love for God and love for others has been uh, meditation. This was not something I did probably until sometime in college. Um, but when I realized that, uh, again, even as, as Dan was helpfully pointing out, that we need not just information, but we need this information kind of written upon our hearts, pressed deeply into us. That's where meditation came in for me. And so I just endeavored, okay, I said, I'm going to sit with this text. Maybe it was a psalm. Maybe it was a passage like this, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And I said, I'm just going to stare at these six verses, these 10 verses, and I'm going to read them over and over again. I'm going to write down observations. I'm just going to mull them over in my mind and reflect on them, meditate on them until God's spirit presses the truth of them deep into my heart such that I'm compelled to greater love for God, such that I'm comforted by his word, such that I have greater peace, knowledge of that peace that I have in Christ. And sometimes I would be about 30 minutes in just looking at the same 10 verses and thinking, Lord, when is this ever going to be apparent? And then in about 40 minutes in, it happens. And God graciously just like presses this truth and immediately, I don't even know how to describe it, but just brings this comfort or helps me to remember and recognize how this truth um, lands weight on my Christian life. Sometimes it doesn't always happen like that. It's not like a magic formula that if you meditate, meditate on a truth for long enough that eventually it'll, it'll press in in this way. But I do think that um, sometimes we need to, rather than read large portions, just sit with a passage like this. Turn it over in our mind, over and over and over for a period of time until the Lord graciously presses it deep into our hearts. And so I think one of the ways that we can cultivate love is by doing that type of practice that meditation upon the love that Christ has for us. And so even as you read through Philippians 2, maybe take some time uh, to meditate specifically on those verses. Oh, let's, uh, 
let's quickly move through this this last point here because I want to I want to give us some time for for questions um, as we wrap up the class. But some of the results of loving and serving rather than fearing and needing others is that it will produce unity. And so as we put others' needs before our own, we're going to be less concerned about the divisions that we share amongst one another's. If we're loving one another, we're naturally going to be unified with one another because we're going to put others' needs before our own. We're also going to have a genuine respect and appreciation for others. As we grow in love toward them, it means that we will get to know them in deeper ways. You know, it's interesting that we often fear those that we don't even really know all that well. It's crazy that certain people that we don't know all that well have this power over us. But as we seek to love others in specific ways, as we seek to learn more about them more deeply so that we can serve them more effectively, we get out of our own selfish and self-protective little bubbles and we begin to see others in profoundly new ways. It will produce peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, the fruits of the Spirit. As we live in the fear of the Lord, we'll begin to more fully understand what it means to be controlled by the Spirit of God and to plead with the Lord to produce these fruit within us. Again, these are the types of things we can't do on our own, but we're wholly dependent upon God to produce in us. And then finally, freedom. When we love others and serve them instead of need them or fear them, we experience freedom from the snare of the fear of man. We experience freedom from enslavement to fear, to operating solely out of a response to others. You know, it's a, it's fascinating how, uh, and this is just how sin works. There's a reason that sin is considered deceit. It causes us to believe things that aren't true, but we think that they're true. We assume that um, if we give ourselves away from fear of man, if we say we're going to fear God more than we're going to fear man, then somehow uh, we're just we're not going to be able to function well because we're not going to be able to even relate to others because we live in such a world that's surrounded by what the needs of others are, how we can best live and serve others in these ways. But the reality is, is that when we grasp again that gospel in our heart, it frees us because we're, we realize how accepted we are in Christ and that we don't need the acceptance of other people. And so if we can reflect on the freedom that we have and once you experience and taste that freedom, you recognize how joyful it is, how much it feels uh, uh, just so wonderful to have that burden relieved from on your back. And one final note, we do all of this not just for our sake, but because the glory of God is at stake. God has created us to know him and to worship him. And so when we fear him, we show his surpassing greatness and his excellency. God is glorified when we rightly fear him. But when we fear others, it's like engaging in false worship. It's like engaging in idolatry. And so the glory of God is at stake in this battle against fear of man. And so that's why it's so important that, again, we have to drill down to this gospel hope that frees us and reorients us toward God. So we just flew through kind of that last section. um, But I did want to spend some just a, a few minutes to answer any questions or hear any observations that you guys have had anything from this class, anything from previous classes? Please.
<laughs> but then also just the hunger in me. Mm. Um, you talked about um, vindication in this life is inconvenient for all of us. And then you talked about the government. But in God's graciousness, he makes mercy for us in our time on earth. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Crystal. Yeah. The the reason that um, I think particularly we fear enemies is because they actually do harm us. Like it's real hurt. It's not some abstract feeling. It's true hurt. Um, and yet as Crystal has uh, helpfully shared with us, God provides love through the means of the church. He gives us security uh, within the members of the church so that we don't have to fear and that we can ultimately find refuge in him. And I also appreciate just asking for humility and courage as well. Um, I think this week, I was particularly struck as I was thinking about this. Um, again, just about the nature of God uh, in his continued work of sanctification in us. If I truly believe that God is the one who has saved me, then why am I trying to perfect myself on my own and not just looking to him to help continue to sanctify me? And so I love how you put that crystal in describing asking the Lord for courage and humility because that reflects a posture that when we go to God in prayer and ask, Lord, help cultivate courage and humility in me in this battle, we're assuming that we can't do this on our own. And so we're taking it to the Lord in prayer. Prayer is 
the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. And so we need to go before him and express that dependence. Say, God, you had mercy on me as a sinner. Now continue to sustain me by granting me courage, humility. That's good. Thank you, Crystal. What else? Any other reflections or questions? Yeah, we. Hmm. That's good. Hospitality is such a sweet way that we can love one another. If you didn't hear the book recommendation, it was the, um, the Gospel Comes with the House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. If you want to know more about that book, find we. Maybe one, one more question or comment as we wrap up. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Brother Dan is referencing John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And so he's not left us as orphans. He's given us the gift of his spirit to carry out these things. Let me pray as we close. Oh God, we thank you for that gift of your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would cultivate within us a heart of dependence that rests upon you and that we would receive the gift of your church to help us in this fight against the fear of man. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.